Good morning. We're going to be reading Nahum chapter 1 this morning. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way in a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt, and the earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end to adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like the entangled thorns, like drunkard as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandments about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of our gods, I will cut off the card images and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Please be seated. Good morning. If you would, I'm going to ask if you would join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study in God's word this morning. Father, we are grateful for this new day that you've given to us. And Father, as we have your word open before us this morning, we ask that you would speak. We ask that you would help us to have ears ready to hear. Father, I pray that we would ask of you this morning what it is you would desire for us to know from your word. And that, Father, as we receive the food from your word this morning, Father, may we not just hear these words and walk away unchanged. Father, I pray we would hear and be doers of the word. We would find ways to implement, find ways to carry out, find ways to obey what the word says. So, Father, we ask that you would move in a great way through your word this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you for the fact that you are a good God. And we thank you for this book of Nahum. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, since this is uh, week number two on Nahum, uh, we didn't get to do it last week. For those of you that were here last week, um, wasn't well, feeling better, praise God. And we're going to try again Nahum. So this is week two that you've been preparing for Nahum. So I'm expecting big things from you in terms of your understanding, a little bit more knowledge perhaps of Nahum. Maybe you've read it a couple more times yet this week. Maybe you're still scratching your head after reading it again. Um, but this morning, we're going to look at Nahum, and 
Really, in many ways, we're going to look at Nahum from, from the positive, from the uplifter point of view. You know, you read Nahum and, and probably one of the things you discovered is there's a lot of things that are kind of gloomy. A lot of downer kind of things in the text. Nahum is an interesting book of the scriptures. Similar to, it fits, if you will, kind of thinking about um, books like Genesis and Exodus. You remember the end of Genesis and it kind of carries over into Exodus, the storyline, the plot. Um, we think of First uh, and Second Samuel. It just kind of continues over. Think of Deuteronomy when Moses is dying and Joshua comes on the scene. And Joshua kind of, the story continues to fold over into the book of Joshua. Well, one of the things that we have before us here in the text is sort of interesting because Nahum being a prophet comes after Micah in the text, but Micah doesn't carry over into Nahum. But what's interesting is Nahum still serves as a sequel. If you read the book of Jonah, how many of you read the book of Jonah? You understand the book of Jonah probably a lot better than you do the book of Nahum, I would imagine. Okay? But Jonah, after Jonah's book, you read Nahum and some pieces start coming together. Some pieces start coming together. You know, as you read Jonah, you probably wrestle with a few questions at the conclusion. Wondering whether or not Jonah has a right to be angry over God's merciful response to Nineveh's repentance. You might wonder... Whatever became of Jonah, I don't know if any, any of you ever thought that. I always, I get to the end of chapter 4 in Jonah, and I wonder, what happened to Jonah? Well, I mean, what, what, what's going on with Jonah and God at the end of that book? The book of Jonah, it tends to emphasize the person of Jonah rather than the message Jonah is called to deliver. And as a prophet of the Lord, you're left kind of puzzled over his response to how God acts towards Nineveh. It got me wondering and thinking, if the book of Nahum had never been written, would we ever question the ongoing status of the people of Nineveh? Would we just assume that once repentant Nineveh would continue on as is with the Lord, forsaking their former wickedness? Well, praise God, we don't have to guess on that one. Nor are we left hanging on the status of the Ninevites following the book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet during the days of Jeroboam II. 780, 760 B.C., somewhere in that time frame. Nahum comes along some 100, 150 years later during the reign of a wicked king called Manasseh. Nahum comes on the scene after the fall of Thebes. 663 B.C. I'm giving you some history timeline where this fits. It also comes before the actual destruction. On the historical timeline, there is 612 B.C., the destruction of Nineveh. Nahum is considered to be a sequel to the book of Jonah. It continues the account, not of Jonah, but of the people of Nineveh. Okay? It highlights not a reluctant prophet, Jonah but a recalcitrant people, these Ninevites. It replaces Jonah's description of Nineveh as a repentant city. If you read Jonah in chapter 3, you see that they are a repentant city. And Nahum recasts them now as rebels acting against the Most High God. 
Nahum has this finality to it. It's, it's trumpeting the closure of a world power, the Assyrian Empire in this case. Okay? Nineveh is the capital at this time of Assyria. And this book resounds with certainty, the message of God's wrathful judgment. And yet, in the midst of this somber melody of Nahum, there's a chorus of hope. The word of the Lord concerns the people of Nineveh, but it impacts the people of God, both in Nahum's day and yet today. The word of the Lord continues to play on, doesn't it? The word of the Lord continues to speak, amen? The word of the Lord continues to speak today. And so I'd like to preach this morning, in the time that we have, from the context of this chorus of hope. Now where's the chorus of hope, you might ask? I'd like to begin there. Verse 7. In fact, I don't know if it'll make it more memorable or less memorable or whatever, but listen to the chorus of hope. The Lord is good, a stronghold, a stronghold in the day of trouble. The Lord is good, a stronghold, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him, and he knows those who trust in him. The Lord is good, a stronghold. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And as you read that chorus of hope in verse 7 of chapter 1, you come away with three things. We're going to talk about these three things. And we're going to explore some other things within the context of the book of Nahum. But our main points are coming right out of the chorus of hope this morning. The first one is the Lord is good. The Lord is good. How many of you know this morning the Lord is good? Anybody? Just a couple of you. Okay, all of us ought to know that the Lord is good this morning, okay? Uh, If you leave here today and you hear nothing else, I I hope and I pray that you hear the Lord is good. The Lord is good, okay? And we look at, here's the interesting thing, we ask the question, how is it that the Lord is good when you read the book of Nahum? I mean, just just follow me here in chapter 1, starting in verse 2. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. Praise God, he's slow to anger. He's great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The wicked are not going to get off in God's timetable here. Okay? The Lord has his way. Did you hear that? The Lord has his way. Sort of like the Romans version, Paul says God is the potter. He does what he does because he's God. He has his way. He has his way. In the whirlwind and in the storm, the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea, makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers because God can do that. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. Those are, very, uh, those are places that where, where the ground is, 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 is rich, crops grow. The text says they wither. Lebanon wilts. God's the one overseeing these things. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves or burns at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? 
His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. And then you get to verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. The main idea of the book. The Lord is proclaiming through his prophet Nahum a message of destruction against Nineveh. Look at verse 1. The burden or the oracle. The burden of judgment against Nineveh. The book of the vision. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The Lord is giving Nahum a picture of what is about to happen to the Ninevites. Okay? In fact, if we were to take just a, a theme, an outline, a theme of this book, chapter 1 would be establishing the one behind the destruction. Establishing the one behind the destruction. Chapter 1 tells us in large part who's behind all of this. Chapter 2 is executing the destruction. In other words, what did it look like? How did the destruction play out? How was it executed? Chapter 3 is explaining the need for the destruction. Chapter 3 shows us why it happened. They're very wicked people. So where does the Lord is good, where does that fit into the chapter themes? I think what we see as we read the entirety of Nahum, we see that he is good in that he judges against wickedness. He judges against sin. Nations and individuals find themselves under God's just judgment. So Nahum is both a message of judgment and, listen to this, it's a reminder that sin will not go unpunished. Okay? It is a message of judgment. But couched within the message of judgment is a reminder, and it ought to be a reminder to each one of us here, sin will not go unpunished. In fact, I was looking, if you turn to the last book of the Bible, everybody know what the last book of the Bible is? No one knows. Do I know what it is? Revelation. Thank you, Mike. I just want to make sure we're, we're, we're following here. Revelation 22. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. Remember that tree of life? And may enter through the gates into the city. But listen to verse 15. Outside are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. If you read Nahum chapter 3, that fits to a T. These people of Nineveh. Because they were doing much of the same thing. The Lord is good, says the chorus of hope. Tell me, do you tend to sing that chorus at all in your life? The Lord is good. Do others both hear you sing that chorus, proclaim that chorus, and live out the message of the chorus that the Lord is good? Do people see that in you? Well, in case you have forgotten, allow me the opportunity to share with you how it is that the Lord is good. Because I believe that some of you here today, some of you here today sitting in the chairs, find yourself trapped in what seems to be a hopeless situation. Some of you may be drifting at sea, you may be wandering, 
noticeably shaken because of some situation that's gone on in your life. You have taken your bad situation and perhaps attached the Lord's name to it, thereby implicating the Lord as bad because of where you find yourself currently. Some of you maybe have seen your situation from the perspective that the Lord just can't do anything about my bad situation. He just can't do anything about it. I'm reminded of the prophet Jeremiah, and in Jeremiah's book, we see that the Lord is speaking, and he says, nothing is too difficult for thee. Nothing is too difficult. Not even your bad situation. You see yourself possibly this morning resigned to an ongoing state of, I don't know if this is a word, Mike, stuckness. You're stuck. And for those that seem to be stuck or those who have yet to take hold of the fact that the Lord is good and then apply that to their own situation, I'd like to share just a few things that might cause you to lift your chin, which then might cause you to lift your heart and look to the Lord. First of all, He created you. Secondly, He woke you up this morning. You're here today. Praise God. He's blessed you. Has He not? He's blessed you in many ways. Blessed you with a house. He's blessed you with a job. He's blessed you with warm clothes. He's blessed you with family. He's delivered you out of darkness and made you alive in Christ. He's given to you His only Son. He's he's given to you His promised Holy Spirit if you are in Christ. He's given to you the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Word that reigns eternal in the heavens. He's given to you His people to encourage, His people to love and to be loved. He's only ever given you His best. The Lord is good whether it rains or shines or snows. He's good whether I live another 50 years or whether I die tomorrow. The Lord is good whether I have much or whether I have very little. The Lord is good regardless of my status, regardless of my position, regardless of my achievements. The Lord is good whether in the midst of the storm or on a mountaintop experience. You take away the Lord's goodness... And you begin to see just how bad things really are. Take away the Lord's goodness and you have no chorus of hope, church. The Lord is good. He is good all the time. And there's never a time when He's not good. Because that's just who He is. He's good. The Lord is good. So good, in fact, I believe that was what led the Apostle Paul to say, rejoice in the Lord always. And he just couldn't stop there. He said, again, I say, rejoice. The Lord is good. And so springing up from that chorus of hope is that message that the Lord is good. But let's let's add a second part to it. Look at the text again. It says that the Lord is a stronghold, a stronghold in the day of trouble. You know, I wonder in the spirit of profaning or treating as common the name of the Lord that seems to pervade here in the United States of America. I wonder whether we have ignored the day of trouble to come. And therefore, because the day of trouble isn't on our radar, 
We see no pressing urgency to run to a stronghold. The day was June 6th, 1944. And it's been said that the army began using H hour and D day to indicate the time and the date of an operation's start. Military planners would write of events planned to occur on H-hour or D-day, long before the actual dates and times of the operations would be known in order to keep plans secret. So the D, we were talking about this, I asked a few people in my family, what does D-day actually mean? What's the D? And we had a couple thoughts and we exchanged some things. The D may simply refer to the day of invasion, that day. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, the D-Day, what, what was the D-Day that Nahum makes mention of? This day of trouble. The day of trouble is the day of destruction that's coming upon the people of Nineveh. Keep in mind as you read the text, Nahum is writing of this destruction before it actually happens. Perhaps some 50 years or so before it actually happens. You know, and as I considered the prophecy of Nahum concerning this day of destruction to come, I began to think about the time that had elapsed from Jonah's prophecy to Nahum's prophecy. And I began to wonder, what happened? What happened? The, the picture that is painted in Jonah chapter 3 of Nineveh turning from her sin and turning to the Lord... It caused me to wonder, at what point along the path, at what point along the path did Nineveh turn back to their old ways of sin? We know there were somewhere between 100 and 150 years between Jonah's word and Nahum's word. That's four to six generations. Something happened along the pipeline of generations that broke down. The word of the Lord didn't get communicated. Someone failed to tell the old, old story. Or to use the language of Joel, the prophet, someone forgot to remind them about the day of the locusts. See, lives befitting repentance, they started vanishing through the years. I know there may have been some who, who held steady for a time, but then looking around them, they look around and they see an abandonment of broken and contrite hearts before the Lord, and they just give in to the wickedness that came bursting on the scene. Spiraling, just think about it, spiraling generations. Jonah provides testimony of Nineveh's once repentant heart. Nahum is the culmination of the slippery slope back into that slough of despond. They return to the very sin that they'd been rescued from. Think about that. They return to the very sin that they had been rescued from. They went, as Jeremiah says, they went backward and not forward. They didn't hold on to the Lord and His goodness. Somewhere along that generational exchange, the baton got dropped. 
And the city paid the price. What do we learn? I believe one of the things we learn through this is that world powers are not exempt from this day. On the history timeline, you have this Neo-Assyrian period where they ruled from some 900 down to 612 when they were destroyed. The Babylonians took over. They were the world power for, for a period, 612, 539, and then the Persians took over. We have these three world powers in succession in the scriptures. And you know, this book of Nahum hits home from this perspective. You know, we gather here this morning as citizens of the United States of America, arguably one of the current world powers of the day, and has been such for some time. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria in that empire at the time of Nahum's writing. The world power of the day doesn't get a free pass as far as the Lord goes. Nor is the world power exempt from the day of trouble to come. Nineveh rose up against God's people. This is important for us to understand from a context. Both in 722 B.C., which we know as the destruction of Israel. And in 701 B.C., during the days of King Hezekiah. You remember Sennacherib? Sennacherib was the Assyrian king of the day. And he was about to go in and he thought he was going to destroy Jerusalem. You can read about this, by the way, in 2 Kings 18 and 19. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles 32. You can read about it in Isaiah 36 and 37. You know, it's a probably a, a very important story because it's mentioned three different times. The long and short of the story is this. They were routed in 701. The angel of the Lord shows up and routes the Assyrian people and wins the day. But you know, you think about some of these prophets in the scripture. Nahum and Obadiah is another one of those obscure prophets that we don't know a whole lot about. But Nahum and Obadiah, they share some common ground. And that they are both words from the Lord concerning enemy nations. Nahum is writing about Nineveh. Obadiah is writing about Edom, the descendants of Esau. Okay? In both cases, the Lord is delivering a word of judgment. And in both cases... The reason for the judgment stems from these nations rising up against God's people. Nineveh destroys Israel and attempts to destroy Jerusalem. But that angel of the Lord shows up and routs 185,000 Assyrians. Just like that. Edom had failed to help God's people on a few different occasions. And also took part in helping the Babylonians plunder the holy city in their day of destruction. The day of trouble is coming. But the chorus of hope provides a place to go during the day of trouble. This is good news, not just for those in Nahum's day. But this is good news for God's people. This is wonderful news. This is a wonderful piece of the gospel. The Lord is a stronghold. In the day of trouble. Proverbs 18 verse 10 says that the name of the Lord is a what? Strong tower. 
and the righteous run to it and are safe. In contrast, I want you to look at Nahum chapter 3, verse 12. In Nahum 3, verse 12, it says, All your, he's talking about Nineveh's, all of Nineveh's strongholds, notice they have several. All of your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. Think about that picture for just a moment. Fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. You know, I think about the, the ripe... I, I was thinking about the garden. It reminded me of when it was warm outside. And those vine-ripe tomatoes that just are ready just to fall off. You don't have to pull them off hardly at all. Sometimes they're sitting on the ground as you go out the next day. They just are ready to fall. And that's a wonderful picture. The picture we're reading about with Nineveh and their strongholds is not a very pretty picture. Because they are ripe. Ripe for what? Ripe to be eaten up. To be destroyed. That's what the word says in Nahum 3 verse 12. You know, there's an illustration that the Bible gives us. In fact, a couple illustrations. But one, if we turn in our Bibles back to the book of Genesis. Back in the book of Genesis. We've we've hit the, the last book of the Bible and now we're looking at the first book of the Bible this morning. Genesis chapter 7. There's an illustration, a wonderful illustration of a stronghold. Remember Noah and the ark and this refuge for safety? Just look at 7, 21 through 23. It says, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things. Hey, you know what? He said the same things in a little different ways in these three verses. He wants everybody to know that there was nothing that remained alive during this flood. Everything died. He destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Listen to this last part of 23. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained Alive. There's a counterpart illustration to the ark. It's the cross. I believe Ira Stanfield got this right as he penned the beginning of his hymn. The cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which we can hide. It's grace so free is sufficient for me. And deep is its fountain, as wide as the sea. Do you remember the chorus? There's room at the cross for you. It's a shelter in which we can hide. Notice from Nahum, the same Lord executing destruction is also the one who serves as a stronghold in the day of trouble. The Lord serves as a safe place in the midst of trouble. He offers security. He offers shelter. He offers stability. He offers sustenance. If you're here today and you recognize that the day of the Lord is at hand, that the Bible speaks of Jesus returning a second time, 
and this time to judge the world in righteousness, if you recognize this day of trouble to come and yet are content doing nothing about it, you're going to be left on the outside looking in, sort of like all of those people in Noah's day who were left outside the ark. You remember Genesis chapter 7? It's written in Genesis chapter 7, verse 16. It says, when the time had come, listen, it says, the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. The only one who knows the H hour and the D day is the Lord. And in that day, where are you going to flee? Do you have a stronghold established for that time? Is the Lord Jesus your stronghold in the day of trouble? He is the only one. Listen, he is the only one who can save you from the wrath to come. He's the only one. The Lord is good. The Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. Let's add one more part to it. He knows, the Lord that is, the Lord knows those who trust in him. Now why would this be such good news in the midst of Nahum's prophecy? Destruction is coming upon Nineveh. And think about it, among all the people in the world... The billions of people now that we have in this world. The Lord has knowledge of those who trust in him. The converse is also true. He knows those who do not trust in him. Nahum means comforter. I find that interesting. His word from the Lord is a message of wrath to come... For Nineveh, but it serves as comfort for those who are God's people. You might ask the question how does God know? He knows those who trust in Him. How does He know? Well, one of the foundational principles of Scripture is this God knows all things. He knows all things. And if we were just to look at one piece of Scripture, if we looked at Psalm 139, for example, it's a great psalm. When we think about God knowing all things. Here's what we know from Psalm 139 about God. He knows my thoughts. He knows my words. He knows my very location. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows what chair you're sitting in this morning. He knows what you have on. He knows, listen, he knows your trajectory. He knows your path. He knows currently where you are headed. If you keep doing the very things you're doing right now, he knows exactly where that's going to take you. He knows your bodily makeup. He formed your inward parts. He even knows the length of your days. Specifically, we can see from the scriptures that God knows hearts. Acts chapter 15, 8 and 9. The Lord knows the hearts. And if God knows our heart, he knows the condition of your heart as well. He knows whether you have a heart of flesh, a heart that's operating in the flesh, that is, or a heart where the Holy Spirit dwells. Because Ephesians chapter 1 says that the Holy Spirit is our seal, right? Our guarantee of inheritance for that day. 
And if he knows the condition of your heart, he is able to always discern rightly in judgment. So when the time comes to stand before him, there should be no cause for concern over whether he's justly judging. The Lord knows all things for sure, and he knows your heart. What else does he know? God knows his people. That's what the text says. He knows those who trust in him. He knows his people. In what way does he know his people? Another foundational principle of the scripture is that the Lord is our shepherd. He is our shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 11 and verse 27 and 28. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Well, this good shepherd has a a rod, a shepherd rod. And his people are disciplined for a purpose, Hebrews chapter 12. For this harvest of righteousness yet to come. We are disciplined in that we might be partakers of his holiness. That's Hebrews chapter 12. But the Lord who is our shepherd also has a shepherd's staff. You can read about that in Psalm 23. His people are led well. He knows those who follow. He knows those who chafe at his leadership. His rod and staff, they are to serve as what? What's the psalm say? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Isn't that interesting? Nahum's word of the Lord serves as a similar comfort to those who trust in him. Think about for just a moment how wonderful it is that God knows those who are his. He never misidentifies you if you are his. All the people in the world, he knows who you are. Back on April 26th, 2006, you might remember the story. There was a van load of college students. And they were making their way back to campus when a semi-trailer crossed the median on I-69. Struck the van, killing five of the nine occupants in the van. And in the moments following the crash, rescuers believed one of the seriously injured survivors, Whitney Serak, was in fact Lauren Van Rhyne. A mistake that would take weeks to rectify. One family received back their daughter from the dead. The other family, once holding on to hope that their daughter would recover, had to deal with the reality that their daughter had been killed in the van accident. Both families used the mistaken identity for good, testified of the Lord's goodness even in the midst of tragedy. I think about that and I'm reminded of how the Lord, the Lord is never going to wrongly identify any of his people. He never does that. He knows them. And how does he know? The Lord knows his people through, listen, through relationship. That's how he knows his people. There's a relationship. You remember the gospel of Matthew. Near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There are going to be people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do some wonderful miracles in your name? And Jesus is going to say, away from me. I never, never at any time, I never knew you. There was no relationship. 
Do you have a relationship with him this morning? A relationship. We think about the Lord knowing his people. How does this get played out in the book of Nahum? Listen, Nahum had been under the watchful eye, excuse me, Nineveh had been under the watchful eye of the Lord for quite some time. Even back in the day of Jonah, the Lord had his eye on the city of Nineveh, which tells us something else about God. He was compassionate in sending one of his own prophets to turn them from their wicked ways. And the king of Nineveh hears the warning from Jonah. And he calls for national repentance in the land. And God hears and relents from the destruction that he had intended to bring. And you fast forward now to Nahum. And the Lord has seen enough. Chapter 1 of Nahum, verse 9. Affliction will not rise up a second time. It's not going to happen again. You know, we don't know what the last straw was for the Lord. The Lord oftentimes doesn't tell us, oh, that's the last straw. That's, that's it. That's the deal breaker. Whatever, whatever it was, judgment time had come upon the city of Nineveh. No call to repentance here. But a call that your name will be no more. Look at verse 14. The Lord has given a command. Chapter 1 of Nahum. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Verse 14, he says, you are vile. I'll dig your grave. There's a description for you. I'm going to dig your grave because you're vile. Or how about chapter 2, verse 13 and 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you. How many of us want the Lord against us when that day of judgment comes? That was where Nineveh was at. Verse 19 of chapter 3. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. Think about that picture. They're all going to clap. Why? Because all they've ever done continually over a great length of time is manifest their wickedness upon all these surrounding nations. That's been their life. You read chapter 3 of Nahum, and it becomes obvious that Nineveh, as sincere as they were back in Jonah's day, they are not living lives befitting repentance. They're not a people trusting in the Lord at all. They are instead characteristic of bloodshed. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. This is a murderous people. They're liars. They're full of lies. They're thieves. Robbery. They're always looking to raid the next city or the town. That's how they became so wealthy. Plundering. They're perverse. They're known by their, in verse 4, they're known by their harlot trees. They're known by their sorceries. They're relying upon another power apart from God. Nineveh, in short, is living in ungodliness. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away, Psalm chapter 1. In Psalm chapter 1, it says that the ungodly will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way 
of the ungodly shall what? Perish. Psalm chapter 1. And you know, the, the, the Lord who knew those things back then in Nahum's day, the Lord still knows all these things yet today. He knows, still knows your heart today. He still remains the good shepherd today. Nineveh chose not to trust the Lord. And over time, their hearts returned to the muck and mire of sin. Their actions reflected a sinful heart. And the compassion of the Lord shown to them previously seemed to drift off the radar through the generations. They had forgotten that the Lord had made a rescue effort to save them from their sure destruction. And so as frightening as it may seem around us today, we look around and we see all kinds of things that just, oh, it's bad news. As much hatred toward the Lord that exists in the world today. The Lord has conquered. The Lord has overcome. He's victorious. And he's called those who trust in him to endure to the end, to keep on going, to keep walking by faith, to keep speaking his name, to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of who he is, to keep getting his word out to others, to keep on being a witness. In fact, this idea of keep going is reflected in Nahum chapter 1 verse 15. In the midst of this dark picture of destruction upon Nineveh, it says in verse 15, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. God's saying, hey, through Nahum, keep doing what you're doing. Keep on following me because I'm your stronghold. I'm going to take care of this. I've got it taken care of. You keep doing what I've called you to do. There's a word of comfort. Some of those words there in verse 15 we see repeated in Isaiah, don't we? Used in a different way, perhaps. But the messenger coming, proclaiming good news of the gospel in Isaiah. Paul uses that same passage in Romans. It's wonderful to see that. We see in chapter 2, verse 13, the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. And at, there at the end in 319, your injury has no healing. They're not going to be around. God's saying, I've got you covered. Therefore, church, in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, how then are you called to live? Are you not called to shine, as Paul says in Philippians, shine as stars, holding fast the word of life? Aren't you called to be the light, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, that city on a hill, that others might see your works and praise your Father in heaven? You know, we look around us and, and there's no doubt that darkness is prevalent in the world, but light dispels darkness, and we're called to be sons of light, sons of the day, not sons of darkness. With the understanding that the Lord is good and that the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble, is there any reason not to trust in Him? The trust, mind you, is intended to not simply be word speak, yes, I trust in Him. But a life that walks worthy 
of following the Lord, a walking in his steps, of operating according to his will, accomplishing the very things he's called you to be about doing in this brief life. The Lord is going to have his way upon arrival. He's going to have his way. If he's judging according to a righteous standard, and that standard is Christ, then the only way we are declared not guilty is through the blood of Christ. That's the Romans 5.1 way of saying, having been justified with Christ, then we have peace with God. Do you have peace with God this morning? Perhaps it could also be rendered in the 2 Corinthians 5.21 way of becoming the righteousness of God. We can only become righteous because of God's reconciling work through His Son by means of the death on the cross, taking our sins upon Himself. That's a substitutionary atonement. He took our place. We are recipients of God's perfect righteousness only as it is offered through His perfect Son, Jesus Christ. It's only in Christ that we gain the privilege of becoming righteous. The Bible says that the world is passing away in the lust thereof. The Bible says elsewhere in, in Peter's second epistle that it's going to melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it are going to burn up. Second Peter 3.13 says, We, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness dwells there. So if that's what's dwelling there, and I know there's one way to be righteous, and it's only through Christ... The Lord has provided and offered a stronghold for all of us. At the end of 2 Peter, he says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, you know the day of the Lord is at hand. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. I was thinking of that, those generations in the book of Nahum. Somewhere along the line, they were led away by the air of the wicked. Peter says, grow, but grow. Don't be led away, but grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you consider your own generational timeline, perhaps it's not something you're proud of. Maybe as far back as you can see, there's a pattern of divorce. There's a pattern of alcohol. There's a pattern of ungodliness in general. Nahum's prophecy comes... Only four to six generations after Jonah walked into the city and proclaimed God's word. And confronted with God's righteous judgment, the entire city from the least to the greatest men, women, the king of Nineveh called the city to repent of their sins and turn from their wicked ways. He acted believing this one thing about the Lord. Listen, he says in, in Jonah 3 verse 9, this is what the king of Nineveh says. He says, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Listen, the testimony of this Bible is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes upon him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You need to hear verse 17 this morning too. I think it's very important in light of what we're reading with Nahum. 
In verse 17 of John's gospel, chapter 3, it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world, listen, the world through him, that's through Christ, the world through him might be saved. The Lord is good. The Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And in his goodness, God sent his only son to rescue man in his helpless estate. Without this act of goodness from the Lord, we are lost. We're left in the dark. We're without hope. God sent Jesus on a rescue mission that we, through Christ, might be saved. Saved from what, you ask? Oftentimes, the typical response that people give, we're saved from our sins. It's a great response. Very good response. But why is it a good response? If you are not saved from your sins, then you are the responsible party to account for your sins when the day of trouble arrives. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his wrath? No one. If the greatest world power of the day in Assyria couldn't, don't think that you can either. While it is true that through Christ you are saved from your sins through his blood. It is also true that through Christ, you are saved from the wrath to come. Romans 5 verse 9. Through Christ, you are saved from the wrath to come. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said, you can't stand before the Lord without a Savior. You need a Savior. If you're going to stand, you need to have a Savior. You need to have a stronghold, and it needs to be Jesus. The message of Nahum paints a dark picture for Nineveh. Many descriptive elements characterizing the people of Nineveh, and they're turning away from God's way. But thanks be to God that there's this chorus of hope tucked in, first chapter. Having been saved from your sins and, having, and saved from the wrath to come, you have this sweet assurance that's given. The Lord knows those who trust in Him. Trust then in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. There's a promise here. Listen to the promise. He shall direct your steps. The Lord is good, a stronghold, a stronghold in the day of trouble. The Lord is good, a stronghold, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. He knows those who trust in him. The Lord is good, a stronghold. Let's pray. Father, in light of the truth that you've presented this morning through your word, through the prophet Nahum, we see that you are not only a God of compassion, a God of love, but you are also a God of wrath. 
the God of judgment. But Father, we see that you, even in the midst of the wrath and the judgment, you are a good God. Your judgment is just. That you are going to have your way. Father, may it be so. You've not left us, though, without a way of escape. Father, for that we're grateful. Even in the midst of a, a gloomy picture here of destruction regarding an enemy nation. Father, you've given your people hope in this small book of Scripture. You've told us here in your word that you are good, that you are our stronghold, and that you know us. You know those who trust in you. And so, Father, I pray as a, as a takeaway this morning, Father, that there would be no one that leaves here doubting or having uncertainties, but, Father, would simply lay down their lives for you, surrender their lives to you, trust in you for all things. Father, we are safe and secure from all alarm when we're leaning upon Jesus. And we thank you that you've given to us a hope. You've given to us something to cling to, someone to cling on to. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. We declare this morning, Lord, as your children, as your people, our hope is in the Lord. Oh, Father, thank you for providing a stronghold in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this good word, Lord, that you've given that shows us and reminds us of our own sin and how you deal with sin. And we praise you knowing how you have already dealt with sin through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.